Over the past weeks, we've been celebrating Advent together. We lit the candle of hope, the candle of love, and the candle of joy. Today, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, as we think about the coming of Jesus Christ, we light the candle of peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace, and the fruit of his presence is peace. Christ comes to bring justice, wholeness, and harmony to every relationship throughout all creation. He wants to continually grant us peace in every situation. Jesus, we pray, guide our feet into the path of peace. Okay. Um, I want to say something to you. I am very impressed with the number of people who are here at 1030 in the morning on December 23rd, which is the busiest shopping day of the year. And I'd like to know, I want you to tell the truth by a show of hands, how many people have shopping that they still need to do when they leave church? (laughs) That's right. How many people still have baking to do? Yeah. And presents to wrap. That can happen tomorrow, right? Okay. Um, it, these, oh, nice job. That's great. Okay. These last few days before Christmas are full, aren't they? I, I really get that, so I don't take it for granted that you're here. Um, this is the fourth Sunday in Advent, the season of preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And over the past few weeks, we've been considering all of the familiar Christmas characters, you know, the characters that are in those stories about Jesus' birth. And this morning we're going to talk about peace. Uh, That's the Advent theme for this week. And the character that I want to consider with you this morning is Joseph. We hear the most about Joseph's story in the biography of Jesus that was written by Matthew. So that's where we're going to start, Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And I'm going to tell you the story, and it is possible that there's some creative license that I'll be taking. So, okay. You can read the real version of Matthew later if you want. Um, So the story goes like this. So Joseph is engaged to be married to a young woman named Mary. And when a couple became engaged in this culture and time, it was usually arranged by their families for them. And the man at the engagement would pay at least part of a bride price to the family, to, her, to the woman's family. And then the two of them would spend a year or more apart. And what was going on during that time is that the man was uh, building the house that they would live in. So, Jesse, you'd be out there all by yourself building your house if that's the time that you guys lived in. But anyway, the man was building the house that they would live in. And usually that meant building a room on the back of his father's house that the couple could um, spend the first part of their marriage in. And then once that house was finished, they would celebrate their wedding together, and then they would go and live together and consummate their marriage for the first time. And for Joseph, things did not go quite that smoothly. I don't know if you've ever thought about Joseph, like thought about who he was or what he looked like. Like I always picture him to be tall and strong because he's a carpenter, and then pretty quiet, although that might just be because he doesn't have any lines in the story in the Bible, right? Like there's no, there's, he never says a word, so okay. Um, But I imagine that he was excited to get married. 
Like, I imagine that he was excited to bring his bride to their new home and start a family together. He probably worked really hard on that house and dragged his friends in to help him, you know, and smiled to himself while he worked. And then one morning, I imagine his friends are kind of late arriving. And when they come, they come in hesitantly with concern on their faces. What's wrong with you guys? He asks, but they just kind of glance at one another, stare at the floor. Seriously, he said, tell me, what is it? What's going on? And so they do. Joseph, there's there's talk in town about Mary. I don't know if we should say, it's too, it's too awful to imagine. The women are saying she's, I mean, it might not be true, right? It might not be true, but... The women are saying she's pregnant. What? Joseph's arms, I think, would drop to his sides. He leans against the wall. So you didn't know, his friends ask cautiously. I mean, you two haven't. Of course not, he exclaims. I haven't even seen her in months. I've been working so hard here, I don't, I don't understand. He closes his eyes. His friends leave. There's nothing they can do now. They had had sort of hoped it was his baby. Then at least there'd be a chance. But this, according to the law, Mary should be stoned. And whoever the guy was, Joseph sunk down to the floor and then sat for a long time. He didn't question the rumor. Nobody would say that if it wasn't true. He replayed in his mind every interaction he'd ever had with Mary. What did he miss? What had he done wrong? Who was this other man? And then with that thought, he was suddenly flooded with rage, and he leapt to his feet and grabbed the long hammer and started swinging. And boards cracked and splintered, and the stones from the chimney so lovingly set in place crashed to the floor, and dust glinted in the light coming through the windows, and tears rolled down his cheeks. That was it. That's his whole life ruined. He went outside and drew a bucket of water from the well and poured it over his head, rubbed his face, and sat down to think. Underneath all the anger, there was something else. Some men got married because they had to. They looked after their wives purely out of duty, But Joseph is genuinely looking forward to being a husband. And he cared about Mary a lot, even if he was still getting to know her. He had been caring about her for months as he built this house. And now all that care rose up inside him. What was going to happen to her? The law was so clear. He didn't even want to think about what she'd have to go through. And he couldn't bear the thought of her being stoned, no matter what she had done. He sighed. In the end, he wasn't interested in vengeance. He didn't want to see anyone pay. If he couldn't bring her into his home and provide for her, at least he would offer her what little protection and dignity was left. Not everyone would agree, of course. They would think he was weak. 
But Joseph was resolved. He would go to her father and make arrangements. And if they would return the bride price, he would quietly call off the engagement and leave her alone to live what life she could. He took a deep breath. It felt actually really good to decide, but he was exhausted, and he laid down in the shade beside the house and fell asleep. And while he slept, something happened. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. A huge, shining figure, so white it was hard to look at. And even though it stood off at a distance, he had to shield his eyes. Joseph, son of David, the angel said. And Joseph found at those words he could look the angel right in the face. He felt his carpenter's body fill with the strength and the dignity of King David's line. His shoulders squared. He stood up to his full height. In the light and the warmth of that messenger, he wanted more than ever before to be found righteous in the sight of God. He would do whatever this being asked him to do, and he would do it proudly. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The vision of the angel faded, and Joseph woke up. It was dark outside. The whole day had passed. He remembered everything. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't angry. Somehow he felt more like himself than he'd ever felt before. Deep in his bones, he knew that this was the right thing to do. He knew he was made for this. Joseph did just exactly what the angel had asked him. He ate and packed some things and set out at dawn for Mary's father's house. He didn't want to waste any time. He didn't want anyone else to get to her first. True, his house was a shambles now, but they would make do. He wanted her to be with him so that he could keep her safe. Her and this baby that she carried that was from the Holy Spirit. He met with her family, he paid the balance of the bride price, and took her home with him as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and Joseph gave him the name Jesus. This is not the setup for a peaceful story, right? The accusation of adultery the law that advocates for public stoning, the rage and fury of a jealous man, drama for sure, but not peace. And what turns that whole thing around is the dream, the appearance of an angel of the Lord who has both an explanation and then some very clear instructions. And Joseph in the midst of the most chaotic and confusing situation of his life, hears the voice of God, and obeys. And then that's it. No more chaos, no more confusion, peace. Do you know what that's like? 
Have you ever been, have you been in situations that are confusing and chaotic and then suddenly somehow you just know exactly what God wants you to say or do? It's incredible. It's not that the situation changes. You know, it's still the same. It's still swirling around you. But all of a sudden, you are still. You are peaceful. Peace is not the absence of chaos. It's not being removed from reality. It's not even having reality change somehow. It's knowing that you are right in God's will, right where he wants you. And then, no matter what else is going on, you are at peace. That's what we learn from Joseph. I read somewhere this week that uh, normally a man would represent his family in any government affairs. And the author said it was strange for Joseph to have taken Mary to Bethlehem with him, especially when she was pregnant. And he speculated that maybe Joseph was afraid to leave her alone afraid of what other people in the town would do to her. Deuteronomy is a book in the Bible that tells us about the law in Israel. And Deuteronomy 22:23 says this, If a man happens to meet in town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. Now, I'm not advocating for this law. Okay, I don't want to, nobody be confused about that. Um, But that was the law that Mary was facing in this story. We don't talk about that very often. We talk about how she would have been humiliated, how that would have been embarrassing for her. But we forget that legally speaking, she could be stoned to death. That's, so, that's like almost impossible to imagine, right? I met a young couple two years ago in Jordan. It was right before I moved to Creston. Um, and they were Egyptian and they were living as refugees in Jordan. He was born into a culturally Christian family, and she was born culturally Muslim. And in Egypt, I didn't know this, but in Egypt, you can tell by people's names whether they're Christian or Muslim, and it's illegal to convert. It's punishable by death. And so these two young adults had met in university, and they both joined student Bible studies, and they met and became born-again, devoted, committed followers of Jesus. And then they fell in love and got married. I'm, like, shortening the story for you a little bit. But um, the problem is that in Egypt, it's against the law for a Muslim to to convert to Christianity, and it's against the law for a Muslim and a Christian to marry each other. And it's not just kind of frowned upon. It's against the law. And so they explained to me that they got married in secret. And then the church community that they were part of helped them hide for the first year. They moved to a new secret place to live every few weeks. They're hiding from the government of their country and from their own families. This young woman who was pregnant when I met her and had a toddler running around the room, she explained that she hadn't seen or spoken to her mother in four years because if her family found out where she was, they were honor-bound to kill her and her children 
and the government would back them up. What do you do with that? Like, I remember I'm sitting in this very hot house staring at her, and I just, like, I'm just staring at her, like, squinting my eyes, trying to reconcile and make sense of what she's telling me. And so to explain my confusion, I said, like, in my country, no one is allowed to kill anyone for any reason. There is a basic human right to life. Right? We take that entirely for granted. A basic human right to life. And so what you're describing is just so far outside the realm of possibility. Like, I can't, it's like a movie. Like, I can't imagine how that could be true. And she smiled at me. This young mother who loved Jesus so much that she went into hiding and vowed never to speak to her family for the rest of her life who was living as a refugee in the only country she could get to that wouldn't execute her. Living on nothing but the generosity of fellow Christians, she smiled at me. She was so peaceful. That's good, she said through a translator. That's how it should be. About 18 months after Jesus was born, These magi, which means wise men, they're probably astrologers of some kind, they see signs in the stars that a new king has been born, and they come and ask the current king, Herod, um, who is becoming, by the way, more and more paranoid and unpredictable in his old age, where to find the baby. And he commissions them to continue their search and come and report back to him, and they eventually find the family. Now, that they came and brought gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. That's a well-known part of the story. But after they left, Joseph has another dream. The angel of the Lord appears again, and it is much more urgent this time. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for this child and kill him. So Joseph got up and obeyed God. I imagine him waking Mary up in the middle of the night, and he has already got the saddle on the donkey, already put provisions and clothes into bags. And she knows about the angel, of course. They've talked about that many times, and it's formed a deep bond between them because she was visited by an angel too. And so this night, she does not question him. She just starts wrapping up the baby while he puts the gifts from the Magi in a bag he's going to carry himself. That should be enough money to keep them until they can get settled. She climbs onto the donkey, and he hands her to the sleeping child as carefully as he can. They don't want him to wake up and cry. They don't want anyone to know they're leaving. Not even their parents can know. And as hard as it is not to say goodbye, it'll be better when Herod's men arrive if no one knows where they went. So they start walking. And it's not too long before Jesus wakes up because it's cold and it's bumpy on a donkey. And she tries to settle him, but it's no use. When he screws up his face to scream, she presses his body tightly to herself and covers his mouth with her hand. 
He struggles against her, and she won't let go. He cannot be allowed to make a sound. While they're in Egypt, Herod becomes so jealous at the idea of a new king that he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who are two years old and younger. Every single one. For the second time, Jesus' life is spared because Joseph listens to God's messenger. They live in Egypt as refugees until Herod dies. And the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph again like he promised and tells him it's safe to go home. They make the long journey back with a boy this time in the full light of day and settle in Nazareth. Three times, three times, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. Three times he's given clear instructions right from God. And three times, without question, He obeys. The suggestion I want to make this morning is that peace is found in being able to hear the, the voice of God and obey it, regardless of our circumstances. I don't know how accurate the Christmas carols like Silent Night is, you know? I mean, I chose it, and we're going to sing it tomorrow night, and I, I love it. But it's probably not very reflective of the truth. We have this picture of the nativity, like all warm and glowing, this perfect little family. And that is what feels like peace. But the truth is, that family struggled. Imagine how hard those parents had to work to trust each other when she was pregnant before they got married. And then they spend the first years of their marriage afraid for their lives. First Mary's and then Jesus. We sang Away in the Manger today, and I love that carol, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? I don't know. Do you know any toddler who doesn't cry? I don't think so. (laughs) When Mary and Joseph are fleeing their country in the middle of the night, Because the government wants to murder their son? When he's flailing in her arms trying to get free? When she has her hand clamped over his mouth to keep him quiet and tears streaming down both their cheeks? That's the nativity too. Peace doesn't come from perfect circumstances. It comes from hearing God's voice and obeying him. So the question I have for you this morning is this. Do you know, do you know God's voice? Do you know how God speaks to you? If you're like new to this whole church thing, I'm sorry, because that's going to seem like a strange question. (laughs) Or I don't know, maybe it seems like a great question. Maybe you've been wondering, how do these people actually hear anything from God? If you've been following Jesus for a while, you might know the answer right away. But you might not. I asked that question at a retreat for campus ministers once and after the session was over, this older man approached me and confessed that after decades of full-time ministry, he still wasn't sure he actually knew how God spoke to him. He didn't really know how to be sure that was God. And I remember how much I respected him 
for being willing to say that out loud. I think a lot of people don't know, and we just get embarrassed and sort of pretend. So I want you to know this. God does speak to you. He does speak to you, and we can all learn how to better recognize his voice. In Joseph's story, God speaks in a dream, and that still happens. God might speak to you in a dream. He might speak to you audibly. Some people hear a clear voice. It does not happen to me very often. I've experienced it once or twice. Some people it does. And for me, and listen, I'm going to tell you this even though um, you might think it makes me sound crazy. So um, this is, this. You, I'm trusting you here. Okay. For me, sometimes when I'm praying for someone else, I have this feel, like, and my eyes are closed, I have this feeling like my torso is stretching out so that the distance between me and the other person is getting really, really wide. It's very weird. And uh, what I've learned by paying attention to that over time is that that usually happens when God is going to give me something that's hard to say but important to hear. And so it's like he's making space between me and that person for his own words to land. And then I usually feel quite startled when I open my eyes and find out the person sitting right close beside me like they were at the beginning. That might happen. Some people, when they're around someone who's sick or injured, feel like a warming sensation in their hands. Sometimes that's how God speaks to us about the desire to heal. It can even be a sign of the gift of healing being given to you in that moment. Some people have scripture passages that come to mind or receive a word or image in prayer. Some people just know, <laughs> right, which is the weirdest one because it's too, you can't really explain that. But they just have a sense in themselves, a deep knowing that that is from God, and it's different than just making a decision. I'm not really arguing for any of those. You might experience them and you might not, and none of that makes you more or less spiritual than anybody else. I raise them because I want you to hear about the variety of ways that God speaks to people and people hear his voice, because I want you to know how you hear it. And I'm going to suggest two ways that we can practice listening for God's voice and obeying him. Obviously, these are not the only ways, but they're a good place to start. One is a very ancient practice that Christians have engaged in for centuries. And the other is a little trick I read in a Facebook article. So wisdom comes from lots of places. Um, (laughs) The ancient practice is called the daily examine. And uh, it involves reflecting on your day and paying attention to places of what's called consolation and desolation. So consolation is an awareness of the presence of God, an awareness of God with you. It's a feeling like he's close, a sense of inner calm and peace and assurance. And our spirits are at peace. And then desolation, of course, is the opposite. It's an awareness or a sense of of feeling far from God. There might be a feeling of dis-ease or anxiety or unsettledness. And, of course, like it's not like God doesn't ever leave us. It's not like God took a hike there. Um, But when we're choosing things or considering things that are outside of his will, 
sometimes we feel quite far from him. Now, it's not that consolation is always a good feeling. And you don't always feel consolation about a good event, if that makes sense. Like sometimes in the midst of profound grief and loss, you find a deep awareness of the closeness of God. That's still consolation, even though the event is is painful. And in the same way, desolation is not always about a bad event. You might be offered a promotion at work, which that's, that's great news. But when you dig in and pay attention and listen, you feel dis-ease about that, unsettled. And you start to realize, God has something else for me. And as we learn to discern between the places of consolation and desolation in our hearts and lives, we learn how to move with God and follow his leading for our lives. You can practice this. This does not take very long. By taking like five minutes at the end of the day to quietly reflect, like imagine your way back through your day and pay attention to where you feel consolation and desolation. That's the daily examine. Now, the Facebook trick, I don't know what the name of this really is. I just call it three things. Um, All it is, taking about 60 seconds after any event, okay, any event, a conversation, a meeting, a visit to someone's home, dinner with your family, it doesn't matter. Take 60 seconds quietly and ask yourself, what three things do I want to remember? And then write down what comes to you. And the thing is, sometimes what comes to mind is a critical piece of information about a budget, you know, or a date that you can't forget, and that's fine. But more often than not, what will come is quite subtle, some quite subtle things that there's no real reason for you to pay attention to. The way a person like withdrew from you at a particular topic or a tone of voice, or something in the room that made you nervous, or a feeling that you had, or a question that didn't get asked. And what you're doing in that moment is practicing being attentive to the subtle movements and directions of God. You might even notice that you felt consolation and desolation during that experience. And over time, you come to recognize those more quickly and trust them the same way that Joseph recognized and trusted God's voice. I wonder, I wonder what unexpected message God has for you this Christmas season. I wonder what he wants you to know in the next few days. Peace does not come from perfect circumstances. It comes from hearing God's voice and obeying him. It comes from knowing that he's holding you, that he's leading you, and that he will hold you and lead you no matter what chaos is raging around outside. Which should, I hope, be encouraging for us. Because we, even at Christmas, no matter how much we prepare, we cannot control our circumstances. But we can listen for God's voice, and we can learn to hear him 
and we can obey. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we enter the Christmas season, we know that there are going to be things that come flying at us that we can't expect, we can't prepare for. And so I pray in this moment that you would, would you help us find the place in our heart that you speak to? Would you help us know your voice? I pray that you would make us aware of your presence that you would make us aware of what you're saying to us and that you would give us, all of us, the courage to obey you. May that be true in our lives and may we find peace because of it. We pray in your name. Amen.